Hello there, Servus. My name is Hashan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the Belarus plane incident. Then we're going to talk about some of the fallout, uh, the residual fallout from the Armenia-Azerbaijan war that has uh, boiled up recently. And France going its own way. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. So Russia and Pakistan have signed a protocol for the Pakistan Stream natural gas pipeline. Um, This protocol allows companies from the two countries to begin laying the groundwork for the pipeline. And given that they've just named it Pakistan uh, instead of something witty like Turk Stream or Nord Stream, I guess they ran out of names. Well, ran out of Fitting names. I'm sure if they were to build it to a different country or a different region, they'd probably have something nice and witty to tack onto it uh, as the official title. But Pakistan Stream is the official name for now. Maybe they'll change it. Who knows? I know they like their special names for their pipelines. But that is a pretty important thing, given the expansion of the Russian uh, natural gas trade, really. particularly through pipelines which can't really be intercepted unless you you know straight up destroy the pipeline uh which would that be an act of war well it would have to be if that or sabotage like uh our the pipeline here in america a couple weeks back so all these really long but for the most part pretty secure means of getting this natural gas to countries um yeah, it seems like the current geostrategic, is it strategy? It seems more like the Russians are just doing this and they're benefiting from it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think they'll complain. But they've been building a lot of pipelines, a lot of pipelines, and now they're building one from to Pakistan. They're building one to Pakistan, um, and we know that they're building more pipelines to China as well. So. Yay? <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's something I'm missing here. And by something I'm missing, I mean some important detail that's going unnoticed that I could see if I was looking in the right place. But who knows? Maybe the Russians are just looking to, you know, maintain their hold over the energy market instead of, you know, potentially giving it up to the Middle East. Uh, namely Iran, who's going to be a part of the Belt and Road right now. But Russia seems to be king of the world when it comes to natural gas and natural gas pipelines. So we'll see how the natural their monopoly of the natural gas trade goes. Uh, but moving on, we have the U.S. and Russia agreeing to a joint presidential summit in Geneva on June 16th. Uh, we talked about um, Blinken and Lavrov meeting in the capital of Iceland uh, last week or the week before that uh, and that was gonna be that was kind of the run-up to this uh, so June 16th a, a couple days over two weeks from now and all I have to say is Lord have mercy on Biden ah Lord have mercy on Biden give him strength he he's gonna need it for this one yes and he i um, i'll say it again we don't need another anchorage i'll just i will say it again we don't need another anchorage and i'm afraid we're gonna get another anchorage for those of you who remember what went down when the u.s and china had that summit in anchorage we don't need another one of those well speaking of the u.s uh having summits and meetings uh, interestingly enough, the U.S. is having a summit with the EU that's going to be held on June 15th, the day before the summit with Russia. So, 
we'll see where that goes. Uh, very interesting, uh, the dates here. I guess it's convenient, but it's still kind of interesting. Maybe it's symbolic because you're meeting with the EU b uh, before Russia. Who knows? Who knows what goes on through the minds of uh, the leaders of the country right now. But lots of summits, lots of meetings uh, as the U.S. currently seeks to find something that it can call its foreign policy. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you. I really don't know what we're up to right now. We're kind of all over the place and I can't make sense of it all other than that it doesn't make sense that's the most sense I can make out of our current um, actions and policies with regards to foreign policy um, seems like we're a bit confused like we when you listen to the people they talk about you maintaining alliances and rules-based global order and then the mess breaks out in Israel, and we are sort of the last ones to respond. Uh, our government, anyway, is the last ones to respond in any meaningful way. And I still don't think they have responded in a meaningful way. I mean, I know we're selling weapons to the Israelis, but beyond that, it, there's like no response. There's radio silence. Mm. Mm, which is kind of one of the reasons why the UN Security Council, despite having a meeting on this and trying to get a resolution on the Israel-Palestine conflict, hasn't really gone anywhere. It's sort of it uh, sort of traces back to this current lack of direction we have in our foreign policy, and that doesn't seem to have changed yet. So rushing into these summits, I hold my breath. I shouldn't, but I do, because I do hope for the best, but I don't know what quite, I don't know what we're looking for, I really don't, and so I can't really see or determine whether or not these summits are going to be successful or failures, unless something like Anchorage happens, in which case we can, we can chalk that one up to the F board, but I'm looking for A's, I'm looking for A pluses, or maybe even a B, not a, not a F minus. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see. The EU uh, has is currently seeking to put sanctions on Belarus, and we'll get into why in just a moment uh, when we get into the meat. So I'll just we'll just let that simmer for a little bit. The EU is trying to put sanctions on Belarus. More sanctions. Russia has turned around a British gunboat. Uh, the ship is the HMS Dragon, and it's it went to the Black Sea. It was one of the boats that the British sent to the Black Sea, and the British, not the British, the Russians have turned it around and made it go home. Everyone on board was kind of scared, or at the very least, the person commanding the ship was. He made, he made it seem like it was some massive force, the massive enemy force, that it turned him around and forced him to retreat. And... The documents that were released, anyway. So, me personally, I don't know what the British were expecting on this one. Um, but yeah, they've been uh, turned around. We'll see if tensions escalate between them and Russia. Uh, we'll just have to see. I don't see how you. I don't see how it can get worse. But uh, people try to prove me wrong. Meanwhile, we have Syria. Uh, Syria is going to hold elections. Oh, no, Syria has already held presidential elections on May 26th. Um, yeah, and I believe Assad is winning. I'll have to check up on this one. Uh, yes, yes, it, all, it has already passed. It's already passed. And the race was primarily between... Bushar al-Assad, the current president, and the president who reigned over the Syrian civil war, there was Mahmoud Ahmad, who pulled in what I believe to be the second highest votes, and then there was Abdullah Salum Abdullah, uh, Abdullah, Abdullah Salum Abdullah, there we go, 
and he was there, but he didn't get a significant portion of the vote. Now, according to the numbers, uh, Assad has walked away with over 95% of the vote with 13 million, 13 and a half million votes, uh, to which many have cried fraud, and we have here a whole number of people saying that it's uh, illegitimate, and that it's, uh, well, again, that it's fraud, and it's been rigged, but um, while I do have my doubts that he got 95% of the vote, and by doubts, I mean there's no possible way he got 95% of the vote, you know, he probably still won. I'll just put it that way. He probably still won because he. this is the guy, this is the president who led Syria through the Civil War and is currently winning the Civil War. He's putting Syria back together piece by piece. So it's not out of the realm for him to win the election. I mean, you think back to Lincoln in the American Civil War and he won re-election. And the war wasn't looking too hot for us at that moment. It was in his second term that we, you know, really started to run away with the victory. Uh, the Union over the Confederacy, that is. So given that Syria was already, the Assad regime was already winning by the time of these elections, I don't see it being very hard for him to be reelected. Again, 95% of the vote, no fucking way. But a victory, nonetheless. So that's my two cents on this issue, and we'll leave it there. Meanwhile, on the other side of, well, the Mediterranean, there we go. On the other side of the Mediterranean, Spain is taking a hard line on border control as its prime minister has gone as far as condemning Morocco for not controlling its border, which has led to thousands of migrants from North Africa and the Middle East crossing into Spanish territory, because Spain has control over a little piece of territory just south of the Straits of Gibraltar. So if you look at where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Mediterranean, that little strip of water um, that separates Spain from Africa, yeah, that is... Uh, if you go straight south of that, to the part of Africa, there's Spanish territory. And obviously, if you're in North Africa or the Middle East and you want to get into the European Union, that's one of the main uh, entry points that you can use to get there and then claim asylum And because uh, you're technically inside Spain at that point. Uh, and then you are allowed to go through the continent of Europe. And... By EU's, the EU's official policy on immigration, that's that's just the way it is, and you can do whatever you want from there. But we know that the EU isn't exactly a unitary entity. Well, it's not the unitary entity that it would like to think that it is, given um, this relevant faction, this relevant breakaway faction within the EU itself. The South, the South that is taking the complete opposite stance on immigration, uh, the stance that the EU has is, and if you get in, you're welcome, uh, and as a matter of fact, we'll invite you to come, everyone's welcome to come into the EU. The South of the EU, that is Spain, Malta, Italy, Greece, uh, they say the exact opposite. You're not welcome if you don't come legally. And Spain is taking that and really starting to run with it to the point where you get videos of the Spanish Border Patrol taking these uh, migrants to the cliff and then giving them the boot into the water. It's not a, it's not a far drop into the water. They're not just they're not kicking them into a ravine or anything. But <laughs> but like they're pushing them over the edge so that they're not on Spanish territory anymore. And that is for as interesting as it is to watch that, it's important to note just how 
far out of step that is with what most of Europe uh, to the north of Spain would be doing with regards to this problem. And you can look no further than France and Britain, uh, who, despite having issues with ceding sovereignty to entities like the EU, or in France's case, to NATO, they haven't really enforced their borders all that much, which is the easiest thing possible to do when you're an island, so I don't understand Britain's problem. Well, I understand it. It's the internal politics of it all. But we're starting to see them, even them, start to change stances on the topic of immigration. But Spain is already is already there. Spain's already there. Italy, under Matteo Salvini, was there for a period of time. He's not in power right now, but he potentially could if he forms a coalition with the other right-wing parties in Italy. And Greece literally built a wall when Turkey was going to let migrants through. So... And those countries, along with Malta, I believe, formed essentially a pact within the EU that's straight up defying the EU position on immigration. And we're seeing the result of that. The Spanish are putting their money where their mouth is, and you're not allowed in if they don't let you in. So that's perhaps one door into Europe closed. We'll see what Malta and Italy do. Uh, Italy's probably going to need another election before something meaningful happens on that front. Greece has, like I said, already built the wall, so that door is closed. Meaning now there's only the Malta-Italy route into Europe. Uh, and I say that not because you can't sail from North Africa to France or anything like that. But because most of these migrants are coming from rafts. These uh, inflatable rafts that capsize very easily so you want to get to the closest place you can and we'll see what this does to malta and italy spain's closed the door greece closed the door before them now the only door left open is italy and malta we'll see where that goes we'll see where that goes and we'll see what the eu's response to it is that's another thing because we already know they're in open defiance but it'll be interesting to see if the EU itself changes its official stance on the matter. Or if it goes with the flow. But that's Spain. Meanwhile, a coup, the coup in Mali that we mentioned in passing last episode, uh, it has resulted in the overthrow of the transitional government and the coup leader being installed as the uh, by the military as the new prime minister of the country. So, if it sounds confusing, that's because it is. I'm probably not doing it justice with that. Just know that there was a coup, and then another coup, and now the new guy is in charge. And we'll see if he's still at odds with France, because I know France is currently engaged in military intervention in Mali. So, we'll see if this sparks some sort of official conflict between france i don't think so but i don't imagine the fighting there is going to stop just because he's in power now meanwhile on a different continent we're talking about asia now we have something pretty big india is exploring uranium deposits in the arunachal pradesh uh now this is a region that's claimed by china it's in the northeast of India. It's pressed hard up against the border between the two. Uh, so India is searching for uranium deposits there. And this comes, this search and exploration for uranium, this comes as a part of the larger uranium exploration effort by the Indian government in pursuit of a large build-out of nuclear energy. Uh, something that China itself is going through on its own, but India is apparently trying to go down that road as well. I know India and China are both major coal consumers and producers, and given that they have populations of over a billion each, almost a billion and a half each, uh, that's a lot of coal. But they're both trying to move away from coal, and neither of them have oil, so... Nuclear is the path that they've chosen to go down, 
and now India is playing catch up with China. Uh, and they do have lots of potential. All right, India uh, isn't exactly as developed as China is, so their needs in regards to energy are going to be lower, despite having a population basically equal in size to China. China is a highly developed, um, or at the very least, more developed on, along its eastern regions than India is. But along with the energy. There's also the question of nuclear weapons. Now, India already has them, but I don't think this massive exploration of uranium is going to make anyone in the neighborhood not think about the nuclear weapons that India already has or the nuclear weapons India could have in the future. I don't know whether or not the Indians mean to build more nukes at all. I just know how I would respond if the country next to me decided, yeah, we're looking for uranium. Yeah, <laughs> I know how I'd respond. I'd be a bit, I'd be a bit worried to say the least. Uh, what do you what do you need that uranium for, eh? What are you gonna do with that? That that stuff. You, you gonna? You sure it's going into the power plant? You you sure? Uh, okay, okay. Whatever you say. Whatever you say. We'll see how Pakistan responds to this. I imagine they'll have a stronger response than China will, um, namely because China already has a whole bunch of um, nuclear power plants. And they're building more. So as far as the Chinese are concerned, this could just be India trying to compete with uh, nuclear energy. But Pakistan could view this very differently. They could view this as India trying to one-up them on the nuclear weapons front. Uh, and I don't think they would tolerate that. They could, they could probably start looking for their own uranium. And we could see by accident the beginnings of a nuclear arms race in Asia. That would be horrifying. I believe that that's not the way this is going to go down, but the possibility is open, and this makes it open. This situation where India is looking for uranium makes it open, and the fact that they're looking for it in a disputed region, uh, and by disputed I mean it's claimed by China, the Arunachal Pradesh region, uh, it's catch gonna catch the attention of everyone in the region more than it would have anyway. But a note, something to note here, is that no one is accusing them of trying to build a bomb. Uh, particularly the people who accuse Iran of doing so. Hmm. Iran must be incredibly jealous, and China, potentially concerned. Pakistan, incredibly concerned. Uh, and speaking of China, they have raised the limit. Uh, for families to have three kids as opposed to the two-child policy and that as opposed to the one-child policy from so long ago so yes lots of things going on around the world but now the rapid fire ends and in just a moment we'll cover the big stuff all right let's pick right up as we get into the meat of the episode and we have some trouble in the former soviet space i know a couple weeks back we talked about a really big border skirmish between kyrgyzstan and tajikistan and the potential the greater potential for russian intervention there than even with armenia and azerbaijan given the already existing presence of Russian troops and bases there. And having recently discovered that there are American bases there as well, it would be a pretty decent geostrategic move if the Russians could find a way to forcibly evict America from their places. We'll, we'll have to see how those developments go down. The tensions have simmered between have simmered but simmered down between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and we'll have to see if something pops back up 
Because remember, that broke out over water. And it's not like the region suddenly has more water now. So I'm sure conflict is probably going to make itself known sooner rather than later. Uh, much to the dismay of the people who lose out on the water. Maybe the Russians will have to start building water pipelines from Siberia. With a, with a pipe uh, water from Siberia. All the way down. You know, actually, I was just joking, but the Russians could probably make a killing doing that. Hey, man, look. Man, look. You think I'm playing? Uh, Russia, if you're listening, you better start building water pipelines. Right alongside those natural gas pipelines. You get energy, you get water. It's a big deal, a very good deal. Maybe they, sh maybe they really should, you know, water pipelines. It sounds so basic. Not as, I don't know what you'd call them, how you'd name them, but I'd, I'd imagine that that'd be a good move to make and to expand your influence in Central Asia if you're Russia. China has water issues of its own, so it's not going to be able to do that. Uh, Russia's in a unique position to do that. Two countries in the arid Central Asian region. Maybe they'll maybe maybe they'll do it. Maybe they'll do it. Maybe they already are thinking about doing it, but just haven't gone through with it. Because the problem isn't exactly super duper bad yet. But I'd imagine that if they're willing to shoot at each other over a well in a tiny village on the border, I can only imagine what would happen if larger cities within countries. Um, started having water shortages. For whatever reason, maybe there's a drought, maybe it's just really hot that year, and you ran out of water. Hmm. I, I don't see them not shooting at each other if that, came, if that ever came to be. If they're willing to do go this far for tiny villages, you can only imagine what would happen if larger portions of their population were threatened with not being able to live because they didn't have water. That's Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, but that was a couple weeks back, and it's, given the, that the amount of water hasn't exactly changed, it's still an unresolved issue. And I wanted to bring it up, since we're talking about the former Soviet space and the new issues. Uh, well... Kind of. We we have another unresolved issue with regards to Armenia and Azerbaijan. And by unresolved, I mean they haven't come to terms with the fact that that uh, Russia's in charge. So, we'll, we'll chat about that in just a minute. But I want to get to this uh, Belarus plane incident. And namely the fallout that it's had within the former Soviet space, because I feel like that's the more relevant issue here, because the EU is obviously upset about what happened, um, but we'll, we'll just get it, we'll just get into it. So, Lithuania and Belarus. These two have been going at it recently. Uh, Lithuania flew the flag of an opposition, the political opposition in Belarus, instead of the official flag of Belarus. Uh, Belarus expelled most of the Lithuanian diplomats from the country, to which Lithuania responded by expelling two Belarusian diplomats. Estonia is currently hosting a meeting between the Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. There we go. Oh, I'm so proud of myself for that one. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and Kersti Kaluleide. Kaluleide. There we go. Kersti Kaluleide. Not so proud on that one, but I'm trying here. Not so proud on that one. So Svetlana and Kersti are meeting in Estonia. Uh, Kersti being the president of Estonia. And they're meeting in the city of Kedriorg. Now Tikhanovskaya had been living in self-imposed exile from Belarus since August of last year when the elections went down in Belarus and Lukashenko won, to which a whole bunch of people said he didn't. 
I think he probably did squeak by. Uh, who knows, really, you know, kind of why I don't put my weight on the scales too much with issues like these. But really, I just kind of look at the implications of what we're given. And it looks like Lukashenko, that's the president of Minsk, uh, not Minsk, the president of Belarus is sticking around for a while. Um, but yeah, so ever since that election, uh, Svetlana has been in exile from Belarus. Uh, she Again, she went into exile on her own, and she's been living in Lithuania. So, she's living in Lithuania, and now she's meeting with the president of Estonia. And I can only imagine that that's probably majorly, majorly pissed off the Belarusians. Well, the Belarusians that... Uh, are still on Lukashenko's side. I don't imagine the people who would vote for the opposition are going to be upset with the opposition doing what she's doing right now. So, there's that. Uh, but even Latvia has sided with the other Baltic nations uh, and has banned flights from Belarus. Ukraine got in on this one too. They closed their airspace to Belarus on Saturday. So, you have Belarus... Uh, effectively isolated diplomatically from all of their neighbors except for Russia. Uh, and why is this the case? All of this came uh, after Belarus had forced the landing of a passenger jet that was flying over Belarusian airspace. Uh, they forced the jet to land in order to detain a dissenting journalist, so a journalist who had who was writing pieces that weren't friendly to Lukashenko, has been detained. And this has caused a massive uproar from countries west of Belarus's borders. Well, west, north, and south, given the Baltics and Ukraine. And this is what led to the EU looking to impose more sanctions on Belarus. And this is what led uh, a whole bunch of countries. This is what led to countries shutting down flights between them and Belarus as a, a form of protest. So all of that over this. All that over this. I, I You can imagine being in the position of this journalist where you see this massive uh, backlash because of what happened to you. Uh, and you you feel pretty good about yourself until you realize you're you're in Belarus and you're in jail. So, <laughs> but um, yeah. So you have this massive uproar, this massive, what do you call it? Wave of anti-Belarusia, kind of. And you have all these flights getting closed. You have tourism isn't allowed by default if you're not allowed to fly there. Uh, I, don't, I don't imagine they'd leave the ground route open for people to go to Belarus. Being They're being put on a, basically a no-go list. Uh, even more sort of despisement than they got over the election of last year. E way more, undoubtedly more than what happened with the election last year when Lukashenko won the election. But... What I wanted to focus on was, again, the former Soviet space in all of this, because these are Belarus's neighbors. These are the countries that have real influence uh, over Belarus. And we look at the Baltics. All three have sided against Belarus. Poland uh, sided with the EU on this one uh, in a kind of shocking turn of events. But Ukraine has sided against Belarus. Uh, so that that's one of the more interesting things that I've noticed is Ukraine throwing its hat into this ring when they need to be scrapping and scrounging all every flower they have for money so they can win their war. 
that they can't really win. So, is this just them accepting death and doing weird weird things uh, before they go out in a not-so-heroic, not-so-glorious fashion due to the slow and steady attrition of their troops in the East? I don't know. I just found it really interesting that Ukraine was a part of this. When reasonably they'd be rather neutral towards former Soviet countries but they don't seem to be too neutral anymore they're sticking their head out I would add sticking their head out at the worst possible time but they're sticking their head out and trying to do things now and while it is interesting to watch they're not exactly going to they're not exactly going to succeed on doing much to Belarus because all of this diplomatic isolation has pushed Belarus towards one country and one one country only really that's Russia and eh, I, I guess it's not one country Russia and China technically but really it's it's Russia because Russia's right there and China's far away Ch you can trade with China uh, but if you're Belarus, Russia's the best you're gonna get, and the backlash, the vitriol has been ensured that you're not gonna you're gonna look in any other direction than Russia. America doesn't like you. You were trying to play the EU and the Russians off of one another. Now the EU hates you, and I guess. More importantly than the EU hating you, the member states of the EU have gone along with that hatred of you. So suddenly that hate has real meaning. Uh, we know how the EU is with unity and solidarity. But you have that. And then you have the Baltics turning their back on you. You have Ukraine getting upset with you. Uh, even though they're in the middle of a war, and who do you, who do you have left? Who would you possibly have left other than Russia? It's only natural that, given the isolation that they've been put into, the diplomatic isolation, I should say, it's only natural that they would go from that to cozying up more and more with Russia. When they were really trying to keep their distance, all right, they were they were very friendly towards Russia, but they didn't want to get too close, because you could tell Lukashenko was kind of skirting around the issue of a union state between Belarus and Russia. But if everyone is closing the door to Belarus, and the only door open is Russia, this could give much greater leverage to the Russians to potentially force the issue of a union state. Or maybe they don't even have to force the issue at all. If Belarus just has only Russia as its means of trade with the wider world. Because through it is through Russia and Russian territory that Belarus can integrate with the wider world. Russia has ports uh, and they have access to the Pacific. They have access to the Black Sea, the Baltic, and by extension the Atlantic and Mediterranean. Russia has access to the Middle East via land routes. Russia has access to Asia via land routes uh, and within Russia itself. So it is through Russia that Belarus is going to be able to ride out this storm. So even if they cozy up with China, it is because explicitly because of Russian support for them. And that is, needless to say, a massive amount of leverage that the Russians have that's getting stronger by the day because the isolation, uh, the diplomatic isolation of Belarus gets stronger, not weaker. So, we'll have to what we'll see what happens. We'll definitely... We'll definitely have to see what goes down there. And I 
wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing more and more about the Union state. And again, the Russians don't need to force the issue. They might not. It could just pop up on its own in a sort of de facto way. We talk about um, Azerbaijan and Armenia being unofficial Russian republics. We could see Belarus become the same through different means. An unofficial union state between Belarus and Russia because the Belarusian economy just becomes so integrated with Russia and so integrated with Russian finance, Russian energy, and Russian tourism, and, well, Russian travel, that, in essence, you can't tell the difference. You, you can't tell when you've left one country to the other, and there's not too much Belarus can really do about that if Russia is their only option. And all the diplomatic isolation is forcing them straight into that direction. And that's sort of what's on my mind when I look at this situation moving forward. We know that they have no choice but to get closer to Russia. The question then is, how close? Exactly how close are they going to get? And how close would they need to be for the Union state to be in effect even if in an unofficial capacity so we'll we'll keep our eye on this i mean if hey man look if this doesn't show you why the russia why russia and the space around russia is so interesting for me to keep my eyes on then i don't know what's gonna i don't know what'll convince you that i'm right but that's lithuanian belarus and what's going down over there and again, I focused on the former Soviet space because these are the places that are really going to impact Belarus, not really sanctions from the EU. And America doesn't quite know how to respond to this one. Again, we have a bit of a confused uh, state of our foreign policy right now. So the American question is sort of offline. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see where that goes. But this isn't the only thing going down in the former Soviet space. I mentioned that, uh, when we were talking about Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan that there are some unresolved conflicts, some unresolved issues, and that Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan wasn't the only one. We have Armenia and Azerbaijan. The fallout continues. And we'll just get into this. We'll just get into this. The tensions between these two countries uh, over their border has remained high ever since they were literally shooting at each other. And to which they still are to a degree. They're uh, shooting artillery rounds across the border. But yeah, the tensions on the border have remained high. So high, in fact that the Prime Minister of Armenia has gone as far as to propose plans for de-escalation. And his plan is, number one, the plan that he came up with, mind you, the, his first plan, well, no, goodness, his plan, number one, is for troops to move back to their original positions rather than remain in positions on the border so he wants the troops from both sides to pull back from the border to ease the tensions that are on there reasonable first step and that's first plan or the other plan is for number two for the minsk group nations to deploy their troops into the region to maintain peace uh and these nations in the minsk group um, are Belarus, Germany, Italy, Sweden, Finland, Turkey, um, and then there's the co-chairs, the co-chairs being Russia, the U.S., and France, so think of that like a U.N. Security Council within this smaller international group, so, and of these countries, let's take a look, again, we have Belarus, Germany, Italy, Sweden, Finland, Turkey, then the co-chairs, Russia, the United States, and France. So, for one of the Armenian president's plans uh, for de-escalation, uh, 
he would need the occupation of foreign troops within this Minsk group in the region. They would need to occupy the region. But let's look realistically at who could actually do that without the assistance of other countries. So immediately we jump straight to the co-chairs because no one else can really do it. Italy, maybe, but I don't know if the Italians are really all that down with doing this at all. As actually we know that they're not because when the two countries were fighting each other, Italy was dead silent on the matter. Italy's in a bit of a political turmoil right now. Would turmoil be the right answer? Um, I know they're being led by um, a, an acting prime minister at the moment while they sort out their government. So I don't see them stepping in militarily at all. Uh, and depending on who does gain control of the government in the future, that may be ruled off the table even more so. But Italy's not going to do it. Germany's not going to do it. Sweden's a bit too far away. They do have a good army, but I don't think they're going to be able to get here in anything that comes close to a meaningful time frame. Or to deploy troops that are meaningful in their number and size. Uh, Turkey might. Turkey might. They're uh, a major player in this region. They're right there. They have the second largest army in NATO. So they could show up. I highly doubt the Russians would allow that, given how far the Russians went to keep Turkish mercenaries out of the Caucasus and eject them wholesale from the Caucasus even when the fighting was over. Russia won't tolerate Turkish expansion north into the Caucasus. Meaning Turkey's sort of off the table. Uh, and that leaves Russia itself, the US and France. France is kind of in a similar boat to Italy where its politics are shuffling around right now especially because at this point they are officially in an election year uh, i don't know if i'm no 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 um, i thought it, maybe i was a couple days off from the official beginning but it's the end of may so yeah they are officially in an election year right now france so everything being done now can be viewed through the prism of the upcoming french elections uh, for good or bad, and we can expect them not to send troops. We can, we can expect Macron, who's in charge, to not send troops uh, to do anything with. Uh, excuse me, to do anything with the Caucasus. So that leaves Russia and the U.S. Turkey's still there, but R Russia has gone out of their way to make it clear Turkey's not allowed here. So Turkey's off the table, and that leaves, again, Russia and the United States. I don't think the Russians would appreciate a U.S. military presence here either. So really, it's just Russia. It's, it's just Russia. And even if there was an international uh, occupation or peacekeeping force sent here, it would undoubtedly the bulk of it would be made of up from russian forces just due to proximity and i'm sure we have plenty of people uh moving in to secure the region and then they'd never leave um that's my speculation that is this that is my speculation it will remain my speculation uh uh, until the end of time. And again, even if we went with the second option, Russia wouldn't make up the bulk of that force, or the Russians just wouldn't allow the, de the deployment of troops at all. So either we get uh, de-escalation from the Armenians and Azerbaijanis moving troops off of their shared border, or the Russians occupy the region with greater force than they already have. That's Those are the real two options, but we're going to pretend that... Uh, 
international coalition is the second option and not just Russia. So that's what we see here. Uh, and in spite of these attempts, however, uh, in this dispute, uh, the Armenian foreign minister, Ara Avazian, has stepped down over the situation with Azerbaijan. Uh, he just can't resolve the dispute in an official manner. It's unresolved unofficially. I mean, it's resolved unofficially, but unresolved officially. Uh, Azerbaijan has even accused Armenia of breaking the ceasefire, and it is currently unlikely that the two countries will resolve this on their own, again in an official manner, which probably means the Russians will have to do it for them, and I don't necessarily see Russia being opposed to that, but we here on this little podcast know Russia is the real winner of the war anyway, so to the victim go the spoils. So we'll, we'll see what the Russians do in their unofficial province. I well, We'll see what these independent and sovereign nations do to resolve their issues. Yeah, that's, that's the way this is going to go. But yeah, we have trouble in the former Soviet sphere, and every time there's trouble, we've uh, I've observed that it really just opens another door for the Russians to do something to their advantage, and the Russians are, for better or worse, smart enough to see those uh, opportunities, and in a decent number of instances, take them. They're occupying the Caucasus. They have the potential to go occupy parts of Central Asia, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. They ha- uh, I, I, I'm telling you, they could build a water pipeline that could resolve the issue, and it would give them great prestige in Central Asia. Hey, uh, I'm sure more countries would be more than happy to get deals for water pipelines in Central Asia, too. Maybe even rebuild the, what is it, the Aral Sea? I think that's its name. The Aral Sea. It's the body of water in that massive desert region in just south of Russia, uh, like in Kazakhstan, that area, just east of the Caspian Sea. There's supposed to be a body of water. It's sort of circular. And it was called the Aral Sea. But it's drying up rapidly and causing desertification there, a water pipeline could be a massive move. I'm just saying. I mean, you'd need to keep the water from evaporating, but bottles of water do that just fine, so I don't see how a pipeline couldn't. Uh, I'll, we'll see what we'll to see, because, again, the problem will probably have to get really, really bad before the Russians even consider sinking such an in- money into such an investment um, but I, I see it happening potentially and Russia's really good at taking opportunities when they see them so we'll have to see if they take that one as well lots of problems in the former Soviet space which means lots of doors are open for the Russians to make moves through but it seems like they're sort of in a bit of a consolidation phase right now, rather than an expansionist phase. Um, so that that means they'll be stronger later on, but for the time being, they're pretty focused on what they have already. And I'd, I'd imagine they still wouldn't be opposed to more falling in their lap, but they're playing it smart. Playing it smart. Uh, speaking of playing it smart, we have another country seeking to take opportunities that it sees. And that country is France. France has recently been going its own way. Uh, or so I have noticed. And we'll just start with France resisting increasing the joint NATO funding. Uh, and they've claimed that the $20 billion that's to be invested in this over the next 10 years, uh, this 20 billion being invested into a, a common defense budget, France believes that it is unlikely to benefit French military priorities. And what do they mean by priorities? 
I would say think Africa, think the Eastern Mediterranean, think uh, the individual defense capability, which France really, really, really likes having, and think strategic independence versus a dependency on the United States. Uh, who could, for whatever reason, one day turn around and smack you in the face with that dependency and make you do what they want, like they've done before. Uh, namely, the Suez Crisis, the, the first one, uh, when Egypt tried to nationalize the can the Channel, and Britain and Britain, France, and Israel stepped in to try to take it back from them. So the first Suez Crisis, France, uh, kind of walked away from the idea of being dependent on the Americans for their security because they have different interests. Here we have the modern day extension of that sort of that lesson that they've learned from there and that is France trying to maintain its strategic independence and its maneuverability because again we see them intervening in all these different places and we also see that in a lot of these places, America is absent. The Eastern Mediterranean, if you think back to when there was high tensions with Turkey, Greece, Israel, and Egypt, uh, because Turkey was sending out uh, potential, they were sending out oil uh, ships that were probing for drilling operations. They were going to set up drilling operations uh, for the natural resources in the Eastern Mediterranean, and they only stopped once the French sent a destroyer over there to kind of push them back. America didn't do that. America was very, very quiet and very, very absent on that issue. So that there's that. You have French military interventions in Africa, to which America is there, just very, very, very passively there. So that's a divergence of interests. You also have um, the individual defense capability, which is contrary. It runs contrary to the American position of wanting its allies to be dependent on the U.S. Although wanting them to be capable of defending themselves, they're just not capable of going out and doing things on their own without the U.S. permission. So that kind of runs contrary to the U.S. position as well. You have all of these things that France prioritizes that runs contrary to the U.S. position. And so what you get is France uh, in an era where the current American leadership is trying to really rein in all the allies and create some new coalition for a new cause in a new era... You instead have France uh, going its own way. They, they are resisting this budget for NATO, this increased budget for a joint defense fund uh, for NATO. They're resisting that. Straight up saying it's not in their interest to do so. Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't NATO be in their interest? Because your interests just are in completely different places than NATO. And kind of kind of reveals how weakened NATO itself is as well. We talked about that uh, when they did their exercises, Defender of Europe 2021, and how it revealed a whole bunch of weaknesses in the combined arms of the various allies. And kind of this shows you, uh, in another instance, sort of how weak that quote-unquote alliance is, Namely because the French, in their critique of NATO, call out whether or not Article 5 means what it says it means. Article 5 being the clause in the treaty of NATO that says an attack on one country is an attack on all of them. And the French are openly saying, what does that mean really? And when you have allies who are a part of an alliance questioning whether or not that alliance is supposed to come to the aid of their allies um you don't have an alliance anymore folks 
you don't have an alliance anymore. You have a league of friends is what you have. Or at the very least, you have a, a, a friend within the league is what France has become, not an ally. And in many ways, this is potentially a positive development for the French as having the ability to act on their own when they need to is probably going to give them an edge up in this era moving forward where America is just physically not going to be able to dictate to the world what the world's position on an issue is. They just can't. You're going to see more and more competition between Russia, China, America, India, Japan. Everyone's getting in on it. And you're going to see Turkey trying to assert itself in its region. And the longer France tries to play the we're all in this together card, the more they're going to lose out on potentially threatening issues like potentially, again, energy resources. France is really nuclear powered, but nuclear can only get you so far. There are things you need that sweet, sweet petroleum for. And I'd imagine there'll come a day when you're just going to have to go out and get it yourself. At least that's what Peter Zion believes. And given what's going down now with the state of American withdrawal from the Middle East, that could be exactly what goes down. I mean, we saw what happened when a South Korean oil tanker was seized by an Iranian ship. The Americans didn't resolve that. Cutter did. And think about that. What happens when it's someone else's oil trade? Will America come save it then? Or is Cutter going to have to really drop the book um, and mediate some sort of comprehensive peace agreement within the region saying you don't attack the oil tankers? And if they fail to do that, well, what does that mean for everyone else's trade? Eventually, there's going to come a day when you're going to need to be able to go out and get your energy yourself. And I believe the French are on the track, the right track, to being able to do that when that time comes. And that's that's just with regards to their critique of NATO, because we also have French President Emmanuel Macron making a visit to South Africa. And he brought with him the vice president of a major French mobile device manufacturer. Its name is Cross Call. So, like, think of Cross and Call put together. That's the name. He brought the vice president of this company there with him to establish business relations. Um, And we see, again, another instance of France expanding its influence in Africa. Uh, now in the strategic location of South Africa, which has been fought over for hundreds of years by the European colonial powers. And it seems like good old South Africa can't catch a break on this one because the French are here. First it was the Dutch, then it was the British. Well, actually, no. First it was the Portuguese, then it was the Dutch, then it was the British, and now you have the French. So, pick your poison, I guess. We're seeing France expanding its influence, and I believe the further they expand it, the closer and closer they're going to get to what's inevitably going to be the Chinese sphere of influence in Africa, which is located really in the eastern half of the continent, and they're going to run into the Turkish sphere of influence as well. They're kind of already butting uh, up against it with, uh, not Syria, Libya. And I believe Egypt will eventually be rolled into that fold as well. Um, Lots of things going down. Lots of things going down. Lots of interconnected, moving parts. And it is, it does get difficult trying to keep track of it all the time. But at the same time, it's really fun to watch. Really, really fun to watch. Even if uh, it's kind of a bit frustrating watching your own country sort of bungle things just due to its own confusion because we don't seem to really know what we want out of the world right now but we're trying to make moves as though we did i think that's our problem right now we aren't clear with ourselves 
as to what we want, I know what I want is greatly different from what the boys in the Pentagon want. And what the boys in the Pentagon want is greatly different from what someone in Iowa wants. Or California. So, we don't know what we want. But we're behaving as though we do. So we get into these situations where we end up losing because we don't know what we seek to gain. Other countries do, and they go after it. They get what they want. Or they tell they tell us to shut our mouth like we're having an anchorage. And then they walk away scot-free. And we're stuck with the short end of the stick. So we'll, we'll see if that fixes itself. We'll see where the French go uh, next in Africa. We'll see if these in, this effort to improve relations with South Africa really sort of pans out. I'd imagine bringing an industrialist with you is probably going to cause major uh, increase in trade between the two. And we'll have to see which doors the the Russians take uh, because a whole lot of doors are open within their former Soviet space. Lots of things going down all around the world. Seemingly unconnected. But when you look at it all together, you realize that the little things really do matter. And one thing can lead to another. And suddenly you have something brand new. And like I said, it is very, very interesting to watch. But that is all I have for you today. And I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I keep saying it, folks, where it's very interesting to watch what's going down because the world is changing and it's changing fast. Sometimes it's changing slowly, but it's changing and it's fun to watch. So we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.